This sermon is brought to you by Buford Road Baptist Church. The speaker today is Pastor Tony Cahoot. Well, let's get to work. We've got a big book here that we're looking at and we're going through studying. And I pray that it will be a blessing to you as we continue the journey. We've been here almost two months already. And we are only in verse number eight of chapter one. And that's where we're going to pick up tonight, where we left off last week. I want to set the tone for you coming out of verse 7. Revelation chapter 1. In verse number 7. Look at the scripture with me tonight. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. And they also which pierced him and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him, even so, amen. Maybe you're not familiar, you use the word all the time in Jesus' name, amen. Maybe you're not really well grounded or familiar with what that word, amen, really means. Very simple, it means so be it. Whenever you find the word amen, that's what it is. So when you say amen in the church, you say, so be it. That's what you're saying. But the content of this scripture here is enormous because if you get this wrong, you get doctrine wrong. And that's why it's important to study to show ourselves approved unto God. And I'm going to just give you a a real quick example synopsis of what this was about last week as we launch into another verse tonight. Now, let me re-reference this for you because verse 7, as we were talking about last week, is not the rapture. We do believe in the rapture. The word rapture is not in the Bible, but neither is the word Bible in the Bible but we believe in the Bible, amen? So here's the thing. This event, every eye shall see him. Let me get it straight for you in your mind now. Listen carefully. When the rapture takes place, according to the word, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we which are alive and remain will be caught up together as a family, the bride of Christ, a group of believers the ransom, the redeemed, we will be caught up. And the word says that we will be changed in a moment in a twinkling of an eye. We will meet the Lord in the air. Every eye does not see him then. There's going to be chaos and pandemonium all over the globe. 747s piloted by Christian pilots will be dropping out of the sky. Locomotives will be going down the track with no conductor if that conductor is a born-again believer. Think about the massive amount of people that are going to be on the highways, Midlothian Turnpike, I-95, I-75, I-85. You think about all of these moving vehicles, whether it be planes, trains, buses, cars, whatever it may be. You think about what is going to happen just by the way of roadway when the rapture takes place. 
It's going to be a, a gigantic vacuum and there, there's going to be an evacuation and people all over the earth are going to be missing all of a sudden. And people who have mocked the gospel, who have blasphemed the gospel, who have rejected the gospel, millions upon millions of people still will not get it. Somebody, and there are groups of people of all wackiness all over the planet, but they will be able to explain and deceive multitudes of millions of people that we have been attacked by UFOs. And uh, there will be people to say that, uh, that uh, Bigfoot from all over the corners of the earth has come and snagged people out of the bushes. And, and you'd be surprised. Are people going to believe this kind of stuff? And, and then you think about the nuclear explosions that are going to be taking place all over the earth. You think about those who are operating water dams uh, uh, and uh, the uh, Hoover Dam. You think about places like that, that is just going to go completely berserk. Think about the fires that are going to be going on all over the earth. And all of this chaos and pandemonium is going to be going on according to the word of God in the twinkling of an eye. The Antichrist disguised as the world peacemaker will be able to step up to a global platform. And you're hearing a lot about this new world order. Believe me, this is in a full court press right now. You, you are living to see what John saw. It's all happening right now. It's falling like dominoes. If, if I didn't know the Lord as my Savior, but I knew somebody that did, I would be having nightmares every night until I was camping on their doorpost and saying, please help me to come to know Jesus. If I was distanced myself from, from God and his people, if I, if I knew the truth, I'd be scared out of my mind. When is he coming? What does the word say about his coming? How will I know when he's coming? How can I look for his coming? I would be like a sponge soaking it all up as fast as I could possibly digest it. If you have a lost loved one, you need to do what you can to win them to Christ, to point them to the truth. We are running out of time. This world is a ticking time bomb. And when it goes off, we will meet the Lord in the air. Every eye will not see him in the rapture. Seven years will go by. The Antichrist will set up his false kingdom. He will offer the sacrifices or allow the Jews to offer the sacrifices for the first three and a half years. And I taught you a little bit about this last Wednesday night because it's very, very important about the next priestly thing that you're going to start hearing about is, and I mentioned it briefly last Wednesday night, is the ashes of the red heifer that the priest will need to offer sacrifices in the new temple. You see, one of the reasons it's not God's time for, these, for this temple to be built at this moment it's, it's not his plan, it's not his will for this very second, but I will tell you one of the reasons why that temple has not been rebuilt up until this moment of breath, 
that I have in my body and yours is because there has not been the dedication of the red heifer, which is absolutely necessary to be used in the sacrifice, the sacrifices in the, in the temple. But as I mentioned to you last Wednesday night, there are at least nine red heifers on the earth right now. That's very important because when the rapture takes place, the Antichrist will call the world into order. He will allow the third temple to be built. And this is the mystery that is to me because I don't know if the temple is going to be rebuilt right before the rapture or right after the rapture. But I'll tell you this, if you and I are living, when they break ground for it, look up because your redemption draweth nigh. Immediately after the rapture, and I'm almost convinced in my own study that this temple has to be built only by human logic. It has to be built prior to the rapture because immediately after the rapture, the peacemaker comes on the scene and he says, okay, he is going to do the kumbaya thing. The Arabs are going to get along with the Jews and vice versa all over the world. These religions are coming together. They're coming together now, by the way. And the Antichrist is going to allow the Jewish people to enter into their temple and offer the sacrifices like they did in the days of the Old Testament up until uh, the early church was in existence. But here's the thing. Seven years go by from the rapture to the revelation. Seven years. In that seven years, this earth is going through a horrific period of time. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble. The last three and a half years of that will be horrendous. We're going to study these events as they unfold in Revelation. And as we read it, somebody might say, that just cannot possibly be real. It sounds like something out of an Alfred Hitchcock movie. And think about it. What we're going to read in our modern day, we will still not be able to comprehend it. But think about John on the Isle of Patmos when God gave him this revelation, how he responded to it. But here's the thing. At the end of the seven years of tribulation, The Lord Jesus, according to Zechariah chapter 14, verse number four, his feet shall stand that day upon the Mount of Olives. It will cleave into, we've studied that scripture many, many times. That's the revelation. I taught you this. When he comes in the rapture, we meet him in there, he comes for his church. At the end of the tribulation, he comes back with his church. Jude, if you read that one chapter book, the Bible says, behold, he cometh with 10,000s of his saints. Now here is the thing. You cannot get the rapture and the revelation messed up in your head. You have to keep it straight doctrinally. You have to get them right. He cannot come back as Jude says with 10,000s of his saints until he has first come back for his saints. So he comes back for his saints in the rapture and in the revelation, seven years later, he comes back with his saints. So it's at this point when John is writing, behold, he cometh with clouds and look at this and every eye shall see him. 
When he comes in the revelation, it will not be like the rapture. The rapture, only the beloved, only the redeemed, only the saved will know what's happening. But not the lost. The Antichrist will deceive the world as to what just happened. He will deceive the world for seven years, ultimately setting himself up as God, driving the Jews out of their temple, setting himself up as God and demanding that the sacrifices be stopped and that he would be worshipped as God. And the Bible says that everybody will have to have the number 666, otherwise they cannot buy, sell, or trade. But in this revelation, every eye, that's talking about every living, breathing human being when he comes back. Now, it's not just a glorious event where he defeats the Antichrist. That's, that's going to happen instantaneously when he comes back. He'll be riding a white stallion, the beloved, according to the word, the redeemed, the bride will be riding white stallions with him. And just as he stepped into the portals of nothing in the beginning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Listen, there were no, there, it, it was just his word, just his spoken word. Let there be light. Light started happening everywhere. And it's going to be the same word that goes forth that defeats the Antichrist. And you think about this. Some of you have been with me to the Holy Land. We have stood in the Valley of Jezreel, the Valley of Megiddo, the place of Armageddon. And according to the scriptures there, the word of God says that the blood is going to flow 10 miles long, 200 miles long, 10 miles wide, and six feet deep up to the horse's bridle. Napoleon said it was the greatest battlefield. He stood there. He said it's the greatest battlefield that this earth contains. And so when he returns in the revelation with the spoken word, he defeats the Antichrist. And now look at this. The Bible says every eye shall see him. And they'll look on him whom they pierce. There's a scripture in Zechariah chapter 13, verse number 6. And uh, I want you to get this on the screen for me tonight, fellas. Zechariah chapter 13 and verse number six. Look at this. When he comes back in the revelation and every eye will see him, one shall say unto him, what are these wounds? Brother Kurt just sang it so well. The only man-made thing in heaven right now is the scars in the hands of Jesus. When he comes back in the revelation, and one shall say unto him, what are these wounds in thy hands? He still carries the nail-scarred prince in his hands. Then he shall answer, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. It's amazing what changed in a week. A few days before the cross, they were singing Hosanna to the king. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And then just a few days later, they were screaming vehemently, crucify him, away with him. So when he comes back in the revelation, when you think about 
Jesus being questioning, what, what happened to you? Who, where did these wounds come from in your hand? When you go back to Revelation chapter 1 and verse number 7, every eye shall see him and they also which pierced him. So this verse is a fulfillment of what the prophet Zechariah wrote about hundreds of years before John was on Patmos. Now look at this. And they which also pierced him, Revelation 1-7, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. Now, this is important. It doesn't mean this wailing that the earth is going into does not mean that they are going to drop to their knees and say, oh my goodness, we... We did not know. We did this innocently. We're sorry. Uh, Lord God of heaven, bless us. Uh, That's not what this wailing is about. Because they know now at this point, when the revelation takes place, the Lord Jesus appears. He identifies himself as the King of kings and the Lord of lords because this is exactly what he's doing. He's coming down the Mount of Olives. He's leading the church, the bride of Christ through the Kidron Valley. He's defeating the Antichrist and those who have aligned with him. Then he's taking his rightful place upon the throne of David where he will rule and reign for 1,000 years. That's the millennium. In the process here, all eyes will see him and they will wail because of him. And what they're wailing over is the fact that Jesus, when he comes, he is coming and bringing judgment with him. And this earth realizes now they are under judgment and wrath of the Lord Jesus. And so that's what this wailing is all about. All right, so now now we move into verse number eight. Now, if you have a red letter edition in your Bible, uh, your Bible should be in red print at this point. And every time you see red print, that is Jesus talking. And so now the revelation of Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus is beginning to speak to John. And he is saying this, I am Alpha and Omega, The beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is, which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. So the Lord identifies himself in several categories here as we read verse number eight. But what I want to teach you tonight, because you may not know, listen, the Alpha and Omega is not, the, the this right here is not the names of some kind of fraternity. This right here, the Alpha and Omega, that you might be blessed to know, you might learn it tonight for the very first time, but these are the first and the last letters in the Greek alphabet. That's important. You know that the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. You know that the New Testament is written in Greek. The Alpha is the beginning of the Greek alphabet Omega is the ending of the Greek alphabet. So the Holy Spirit is saying this. The Lord God is speaking. And Jesus is saying this. Now, when you get this, 
I am the Alpha and the Omega. He is saying this, the beginning of the Greek alphabet, the ending of the Greek alphabet, he is saying this, I am the beginning and the ending. I am Jesus. I am the A to Z and everything in between. He's saying I'm the beginning and I'm the ending. And so he identifies himself not only with the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending, he also goes on to say, which is, which was, and which is to come. And then he closes verse 8 with saying the Almighty. And there is a, a seminary word that we use a lot, and I want to teach it to you tonight. It's, it really doesn't need to be confined to a seminary. It needs to be, I think, intertwined in every pew. If you own a Bible, you ought to know the meaning of this word, immutability. You need to know that. Because what verse number eight teaches us is the immutability of the Lord. And that is this. He can never, ever change. In the Old Testament, he said, I am the Lord God and I change not. Now, I want you to see a classic verse that we connect that scripture with to Hebrews chapter 13 and verse number 8. Jesus Christ, look at this. The immutability of God means he cannot change. That's, that's a word you need to know. If you do not know it, you're not familiar with it, you need to learn it tonight. You can go home and say, I learned a new word tonight. Immutability, it simply means this. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that means that he absolutely cannot change. And that's what verse number eight is teaching us. And so when you look at all four of these primary declarations, and then which is and which was and which is to come, you've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight of these declarations here. The verse also, as we think about those uh, attributes of God, the Lord Jesus, there are three other additional things that we take out of this verse. We get from this verse, takeaways, if you will. Number one, and that is this, because he's everything. That means he is omniscient. And that's the first and final source of knowledge. He is omniscient, which means this, he knows everything. There is nothing that God does not know. Number two, he is omnipresent. That means he's everywhere. He is the beginning and the ending of all time. There are two passages I want to give you with that. Matthew chapter 18 and verse number 20. Omnipresent, he said this, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And in chapter 28 and verse number 20, he says this, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always. That means this, that there is never a time that God cannot be with you. He is with you always, even until the end of the world. Amen. So not only is he omniscient, all-knowing, not only is he omnipresent, he's everywhere, but he's omnipotent, which means he is all-powerful. That is in parentheses, so to speak, with which is, which was, which is to come, the Almighty. That means this, 
everything that this Bible says that God can do, he has said he can do, he will do. So there's a lot in verse 7 and verse number 8. Now we get to an interesting passage of Scripture, and you're going to need something to write with if you want to carry home with you tonight some very interesting knowledge about some great people of the Bible, great men of the faith, and then uh, in modern times as well. Because I'm I'm going to give you in just a minute the names of some of the disciples and other great followers of the Lord and how they died. And that's not a common thing that you are familiar with and that you, I'm sure, there's not a person in here tonight that has that written in the margin of your Bible. So I'm going to give it to you tonight. One of my favorite books in my personal library is called The Fox's Books of Martyrs. If you do not have that in your own personal devotional resource, I would encourage you to get a good um, Christian bookstore resource and get this book, Fox's Books of Martyrs. But when you look at verse number nine, I, John, and this is one of five times that he personally introduces himself by his name in Revelation. But he says, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation. Now, the word tribulation here does not have anything to do with the tribulation that I have just mentioned to you, the seven years of tribulation. This tribulation does not apply to that at all, and I want to be clear with that. However, the word tribulation here means exactly what it says, and John found himself on the Isle of Patmos in some serious trouble. He had been or was in the prison of Patmos for preaching the word. And Jesus had something to say about those who would go through tribulation for the preaching of the word. Let me, now, here's the thing. The Bible teaches us that if we suffer as Christians, then we've done a good thing. But if we are not suffering as Christians and we're suffering and we brought it on ourselves, that's another thing. But look at this. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 10 and 13, Jesus had something to, to say about the tribulation that would accompany taking a stand for Christ and preaching the word. In verse number 10, and I want to read verses 10 through 13, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. And so that, that's important because Jesus had something to say about being persecuted for the gospel, for preaching the word. I, I really do believe this, especially in the days and times that we live right now. I think everybody in this auditorium knows this because you see it unfolding every single day in some way or another. But 
trouble always follows preaching the word. Always. Paul said, preach the word. And any pastor, preacher, teacher, anybody that's going to herald, preach, teach the word, you can bank on tribulation, trouble. Jesus warned us of this. In John chapter 16, verse number 33, the scripture says, These things have I spoken unto you that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation. Again, that's not talking about the seven years of tribulation. This is talking about tribulation that people will suffer for the cause of Christ. But be of good cheer, Jesus said, I've overcome the world. Paul warned us about this in Acts chapter 14 and verse number 22. He said, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. And he also said this in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 12. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ shall suffer persecution. Now, Many people in the scripture fell under that burdensome stone. And I want you to, I'm going to go slow, but I want you to listen to just some of them. I don't have time tonight to give you all of them. But again, if you get Fox's Books of Martyrs, it will bless you. You can be occupying your time for a long time to come. Stephen was the first martyr. You know the story. I'm not going into that tonight, but Stephen was stoned to death. James the Great. There were several people in the Bible called James, several people in the Bible called Simon. I don't have time to go into all of those tonight. James the Great. He was beheaded. By the way, it's important for me to identify him because he was killed by Herod. And as a result of him killing Herod, God sent an angel. In fact, I do think this is worth mentioning tonight, and I don't have this scripture written down ahead of time for the men in the back, but in Acts chapter 12, verse number 23, as a result of Herod beheading James the Great, in Acts chapter 12, verse 23, As a result of that, this is what happened to this man. And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him. Now he had killed James the Great. And as a result, the angel of the Lord smote him because he gave not God the glory. And he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. Philip. Philip was stoned just like Stephen, and crucified. Matthew. Matthew was a great missionary himself, an evangelist, a disciple. Matthew's ministry took him to the African part of Ethiopia, but Matthew was ultimately beheaded. Now, here's another James. James the Less, the son of Alphaeus. 
James the less, he was also beaten and stoned to death. Matthias. Matthias is, is, is a unusual guy because if you remember, when Judas Iscariot betrayed the Lord Jesus, they cast lots. Who would be his replacement? And according to the scriptures, the lot fell on Matthias. Matthias, he was known as the alternate disciple. And Matthias was ultimately stoned to death. Andrew and some of these great men of the faith suffered and experienced barbaric persecutions and tribulations. But Andrew was tied to an X-shaped cross. Picture that in your mind. He's like this. He's tied now to this X-shaped cross. And for three days, he was tortured and slowly, very slowly and methodically, he died. Mark. Mark was ultimately tied with ropes that had hooks in these ropes, and he was dragged through the streets until his body literally ripped apart. Peter. Peter died in Rome. He was crucified upside down. Paul also was beheaded in Rome. Now, there was another individual. His name was Thaddeus, or a surname, uh, Judas. And he had an interesting conversation with Jesus. This is not Judas Iscariot. Let me show you what I mean. In John 14, verse number 22. By the way, there were three people in the Bible who were named Judas. Do you know anybody on the face of this earth that's ever named their child Judas? You might know somebody. I don't know anybody that's ever named their daughter Jezebel. People don't do this. I mean, even wicked, sinful people of the generation we live in there's something horrible about this, this, these names. But anyway, Thaddeus, also known as Judas in John 14, 22. Judas, this isn't, look at this. Saith unto him, and I'm so glad that the Holy Spirit led John to write this, not Iscariot. It, the word, the Spirit of God makes it crystal clear. Lord, and this is what Thaddeus or Judas is asking Jesus, Lord, how is it that thou will manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? So uh, that's a message in another story. And this, uh, then there was the the, uh, half-brother of Jesus, Jesus, and then it was Jude himself. So three people in the Bible named Judas. Now, Bartholomew. Bartholomew was also known as Nathaniel. And 
let me say this, that in my opinion, Bartholomew suffered the worst martyrdom, the worst tribulation, the worst persecution of them all. It's just my opinion. You can study the Bible, get something else out of it. To God be the glory, press on, rock on for Jesus. And I will say this before I tell you how he died, because he was the first reluctant seeker of the Lord. But Bartholomew, he ultimately was filleted alive. Now, there's a scripture I want you to see this in John 1, verse 46 through 49. And uh, they will get that scripture up there for you real quick. And Nathanael said unto, or Bartholomew, sometimes you read him by this name or the other. And Nathanael said unto him, you see, he was a very reluctant seeker. He kind of reminds me like Nicodemus who came to Jesus by night. I'm five minutes over. I cannot believe this. Listen, and Nathaniel said unto him, can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? I got to close here. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip saith unto him, come and see. So I'm going to stop here and I'll give you the rest of these uh, up, up until some recent modern times, that it brings us back to verse number nine in chapter one. And I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation. Many people in the word suffered great tribulation. And Jesus said, you're going to do it. If you preach the word, you're going to suffer tribulation. You listen to Pastor Tony Cahoot. For more information, visit our website at BufordRoadBaptistChurch.com.